Remain standing and pray with me. Lamb of Calvary, we come before you this morning, humble, weak, and limited, earthbound creatures, and we ask that you would pour out your mercy, your free mercy, your free grace, your free goodness upon us this morning. And may that transform us evermore into the image of you, Jesus. Father, help us this morning to hear, to preach, to receive your word from that your spirit will plant in our hearts. And I pray that you would bear fruit from it for your kingdom. We give ourselves to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, if you will, go ahead and turn with me to our gospel lesson found in Luke chapter 4. We won't be going into super detail, but we're going to be looking uh, at some of the aspects of that text and around that text in the broader context. So um, please turn there if you will. You might want to reference that from time to time throughout the sermon. Well, if you don't, if you haven't noticed the color change, well, today's the first, and you weren't here on Ash Wednesday, today is the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is a season of spiritual training and testing where we train ourselves, and here's the important part, under the Spirit's power, not under our own power, but under the Spirit's power to turn away from self-directed living. If you've been to Foundations, that line might have sounded familiar. Uh, turn away from self-directed living, away from the devil, the world, and the flesh, what we renounce in our baptisms, and to turn to follow Jesus and to live according to the way of the cross, the way of life and peace. Lent is a season, again, of spiritual training and testing. And this is why the wilderness plays such a large role in the Lenten imagination. Because the wilderness throughout Scripture is often a place of divine testing and trial, though not always. There are times when the wilderness is a mark of divine judgment. The wilderness is always, whether it's for a trial or testing or, or the mark of a divine, of divine judgment, is always a place of contest. It represents places on this planet that resist the rule of God. Because remember, God is a God of life. He is the creator God. And one day, all of earth, there will be no wilderness. All of earth will be verdant, be full of life and vitality and flourishing. So throughout scripture, the wilderness is often, though not always, a place of divine testing and trial. And that is the case here this morning in Luke chapter 4. This is a place, the wilderness, and Luke 4 of testing and trial. Just listen to the first two verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Judah. This is where he has just been baptized. Returned from Judah and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing. And when those days were ended, he was hungry. He was hungry. In those two verses, Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we know that Jesus, that Jesus is in the wilderness at the behest of the Holy Spirit. He's not there randomly. He's not just traveling from one place to another. The Holy Spirit, twice Luke says, if you, didn't, if you didn't catch it the first time, he says it again, Jesus was full of the Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, into the wilderness initially, and then throughout his time in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is the one guiding and directing Jesus in this place, to this place and in this place, of testing and trial. Yet we also see that the devil is present in the wilderness as well, tempting Jesus along the way. So being full of the Spirit doesn't keep one from temptation. 
or even from profound temptation. We might say demonic temptation, temptation from the devil or the principalities and powers that are fallen in this world. And while God is not the source of temptation, because the text clearly here clearly sees the devil as the source of temptation, he does send his son. And by extension, he sends his children into places of testing and trial where we will likely face temptation. He sends us into contested territory. He sends us into the wilderness. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the one directing and guiding Jesus into this place of testing and trial where he encounters the great tempter, we might ask why. Why? Why Why does every one of the Gospels have this episode? Why does Luke include this episode in the life of Christ? Why risk, you might say, a confrontation with the great enemy now, at the very beginning of his ministry? Why not hold your strength to the end? Why go into the wilderness seeking out a place of testing where you would be likely encountering the evil one? And here's the big overarching answer that Luke provides for us not only just in the passage I was read, but in the larger, the broader context of his gospel. Here's the answer. By means of the Holy Spirit, by means of the Holy Spirit, God the Father is drawing to conclusion, drawing to conclusion or bringing to completion in the person of Jesus the story of creation and redemption that reaches back to the first chapter of Genesis. I want to say that one more time. This is why he's in the wilderness facing off with the devil by means of temptation. By means of the Holy Spirit, God the Father is drawing to conclusion or bringing to completion in the person of Jesus the story of creation and redemption that reaches back to the first chapter of Genesis. In particular here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is presented as the conclusion, the conclusion, the summary statement, the final argument in this long history of the world He is presented as the conclusion to the story of Israel and to the story of Adam. Jesus does this concluding work by facing what Adam faced in the garden. He faces directly the serpent, the devil. And by facing what Israel faced in the wilderness, a place of lack. Lack of food, lack of water. It really tests the limitations of a human body and of a human soul. Such a place as the wilderness. Jesus does this concluding work by facing what Adam and Israel faced. He is bringing to conclusion the story of Adam by becoming the second Adam, the representative of a new humanity. And doing what that first Adam, that first Adam failed to do. You see, the first Adam failed to resist the devil's temptation in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of creation as he listened to the serpent twist God's words when the serpent was tempting Eve. Jesus, and Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, overcomes the devil's temptations by means of a confident loyalty and love of his Father. Likewise, Jesus brings to conclusion the story of Israel. He does what Israel failed to do when they faced the various temptations in the wilderness. Israel enters and journeys through the wilderness for 40 years after God led them through the waters of the Red Sea, where, according to Paul, God baptized Israel. And according to the book of Exodus, 
where he declared Israel to be his son, the nation of Israel, his son. In the wilderness, Israel failed to rely upon God to provide all they needed, grumbling for bread. You might remember back to Exodus 16, in verses 2 and 3, Israel is about just a few weeks into the wilderness. They've left, they departed miraculously through the waters of the Red Sea. God has saved them, he's redeemed them. They're in the wilderness, and they've run out of food, and their stomachs are growling, and they grumble to the Lord. We wish, we wish that we were back in Egypt. And I mean, such, you can just imagine like how like, crazy that sounds. This is a place where you've been crying for generations to leave, oppressed, and then after two weeks, with a little hunger in your stomach, you desire to go back because there at least you knew, you knew where your food was coming from. In the wilderness, Israel failed to rely upon God, the creator, the one who subdues the wilderness. They failed to rely upon God to provide all they needed, grumbling for bread. And they also failed to remain loyal to God, flirting disastrously with idolatry. You might remember there of Exodus 32 through 34, the golden calf episode. Similarly, Jesus Coming through the waters of baptism, just as Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, hears God say in Luke 3, 22, you are my beloved son. And similarly, the spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years, but 40 days, where he does what Israel proved, what Israel proved incapable of doing. He overcomes the temptations of the wilderness by relying upon God to sustain his very human body. We know it was a very human body because Luke says he was hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Of course he's hungry. I might get hungry after 40 minutes of not having something. Jesus makes it 40 days uh, and he is hungry. You can imagine that hunger. I think I would have added some adjectives to that. Uh, We might need to talk to Luke about his writing. But uh, he was hungry. His very human body. He relied upon God to sustain his very human body in the wilderness, and also by loving and remaining loyal to God his Father, refusing to bow down, as we heard in our gospel reading, refusing to bow down and worship the devil to get an easy road to world domination or or his kingship. Now, if you're thinking, where in the world is all this coming from? I'd see a few things like that in our, our gospel reading this morning. Just look with me at the preceding passage in Luke 23 through 38. Now, I'm not going to read this. I'm, not, I'm going to spare you from the 77 names that are listed there uh, and my butchering uh, pronunciation of them. We won't read that, but just look there. You can glance there. In this passage, Luke does something unexpected, right? In his gospel, he does something unexpected. In the gospel of Matthew and Mark, each of those authors moves straight from the baptism of Jesus right into the wilderness temptation. They don't stop. There's nothing in between those two sections. They go straight from baptism. Spirit seems to just throw Jesus into the wilderness to face Satan there through temptation. But what's Luke doing? Luke inserts between the baptism of Jesus and his temptation, Jesus' family tree, beginning with Joseph, his adopted father, and going back through King David, through Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, the patriarchs, all the way back to Adam, whom Luke records as the son of God. Because God made him out of the dust of the earth. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the final, 
the final and concluding answer to the story that begins with God creating Adam and Eve. He wants to see that Jesus is the summation. All things are summed up in Jesus. Irenaeus described this by an ancient rhetorical term, recapitulation. Jesus is the recapitulation of God's story from creation to new creation. All of our lives are recapitulated in the life of Jesus, summed up in the life of Jesus. He is the greatest reversal to the failures of Adam and Eve. He is the answer to the story of Adam and Eve failing to resist the serpent's temptation in the garden. He is the answer to Israel's failure to remain loyal to God by giving in to the various temptations they faced in the wilderness. Both Adam and Israel proved to be unfaithful sons. But Jesus, as the Son of God, does what they failed to do. He remained loyal and loving to God as Father when faced with the temptation to desert him and his purposes and his mission there in the wilderness, in this initial face-off with the devil. And now Luke reinforces this understanding of Jesus by connecting Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and his family tree with his baptism in Luke 21 through 22. He closely connects these passages by the repeated phrase, Son of God. You might have heard them. We hear in 3.22, Luke 3.22, when the voice of God declares over Jesus as baptism, you are my beloved son, the son of God. In 3.28, we hear at the conclusion of Jesus' family tree that he is the son of God. And in, four, in chapter 4, verse 3, and in verse 9, the devil is tempting Jesus, and he says to him, if you are, if you are the son of God, You see, the phrase son of God is another way, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, another way of indicating that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. The baptism is his anointing. It's his setting apart. It's his commissioning to do his messianic work. The phrase the son of God is another way of indicating that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Yet Luke's inclusion of Jesus' family tree that stretches back to God's creation of Adam is his way of saying that even though Israel, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, he will be so for all the world, not only for Israel. All creation, the whole human race, will benefit from what he has come to do, what God has anointed him to do by his spirit in his baptism. This cosmic, this global scope to God's purposes is the background to the Holy Spirit flinging, leading, guiding Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this is why Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is such good news for us today in this, on this first Sunday in Lent. Jesus as our Messiah, not just Israel's Messiah, but also our Messiah. Jesus as our King overcomes the devil and his temptations at the most personal and private level. You see, in the wilderness, Jesus was not performing before a crowd. You know, if you're a skeptic, you might look at Jesus and all, these, all his actions in front of the crowd, and you might think he's like many others, and he can put on a pretty good act. He can perform when there are people there. But Jesus is not, he's not performing before a crowd. And the only way we know these stories is that Jesus came back from the wilderness and told his disciples what happened. In the wilderness, Jesus was not performing before a crowd. He was far away from any crowd or observing eye when the devil tempts him 
Yet by the Spirit's power and the Spirit's discernment through the Scriptures, which we see him use, Jesus overcomes temptation and defeats the devil at that most personal and private of moments. When you're by yourself, all alone, you and your heart, Jesus could have took an easy road to what he thought was God's final goal of him being over heaven and earth. Remember, the devil offers him, I'll give you everything if you just fall down and worship me. And you just make a loaf of bread. No one will ever know. The serpent, just like in the garden, twists God's words, twists the mission for Jesus to tempt Jesus in the privacy of his own heart, in the privacy of the wilderness, to act in a way contrary to his mission, contrary to his role as the world's king, redeeming king. Jesus is not like some public Christian leaders today and maybe some of us that make the mistake of thinking that as long as we are pursuing the right aims in our public lives, what we do in private doesn't matter. That is the typical lie whispered by the same voice that Jesus heard in the wilderness, the voice of Satan. And there would have been little reason, there would have been little reason for Jesus to continue on with his mission. The words that God spoke over Jesus, you are my beloved son, draw us back to Isaiah 42. These are words that God speaks over the suffering servant, who if we keep reading Isaiah in Isaiah 53, we know he comes to take upon himself our transgressions and to suffer greatly. So even at the baptism of Jesus, the cross is already in view. The suffering of God's servant is already in view in the cross. And if Jesus falls prey to temptation here in the privacy of the wilderness, there's no point really for him to carry on because the same devil who is won here will win at the cross. There's little reason for Jesus to carry on with his mission to the cross if he does not overcome that voice, that temptation, while in the privacy and seclusion of the wilderness. Yet as we heard read, Jesus does indeed overcome the devil and this temptation. And in his victory, Jesus begins to undo the failings of Adam and the failings of Israel. And this is good news for us today because Jesus has also undone our failures. Jesus has undone your failures. In his face off in the wilderness with the devil, he has undone your failures. He's undone my failures. Where we have so often failed, he achieves victory over the devil and over temptation. This is what we reminded ourselves this past Ash Wednesday. We remind ourselves that we are dust-bound creatures, fallen and limited, unable to overcome the devil or temptation under our own power. Yet Jesus took upon himself our dust-bound flesh with its limitations and did in it and through it, through this human body, through his human body, what we could never do in our own, what Adam and Israel never did. He overcame temptation. He won victory over the devil. He was loyal in his love to God. He won initially here in the wilderness and ultimately on the cross. And that is why we received Wednesday, the ash on our foreheads and the sign of the cross. As Father Ben preached, this is a gospel act. It's a gospel sign. 
that Jesus has taken up our frailty and our proneness to death, that we die, and he has transcended it in the cross and overcome death in his death. That's why the ash takes the form of a cross on our foreheads. Jesus has won that victory. He's defeated the devil, and he's overcome temptation in our weakness, the limitations of our human bodies. And his victory over temptation now is our victory. Know this Lent that your victory is given to you in Jesus. You are victorious in our once and future king. You are victorious. We can rejoice even in the midst of Lent. We can even adopt what our Eastern brothers and sisters call a bright sorrow. We can rejoice in Lent for the victory that Jesus has achieved over the devil and over temptation on our behalf and on behalf of this world. Many of us struggle, often privately, with our own failure to resist temptation or our own failure to overcome the sway of our twisted desires just as Adam and Israel did in their lives. So listen and hear this again. Hear this good news. King Jesus has defeated the devil, the world, and the flesh, and you have the power to renounce them. He has won victory for you over your temptation, over your twisted desires, over the weaknesses of your earthbound flesh. He has won. He's transcended them in his life and in his death on the cross. We have testimony to that because God raised him from the dead and has seated him in his right hand in heaven. And you have access. You have access to his victory because like Jesus, you have been baptized by God and have received from him grace. Grace, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that filled Jesus and led him to overcome temptation and the devil in the wilderness, you have. It's yours by birthright. You have it. And like Jesus, God at his baptism declares and still declares over you what he said of Jesus. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. This Lent, this Lent, make Jesus' story yours. Make his life yours by the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in you as your birthright, as your guarantee of the good life and the grace that God has given to you through his son, Jesus. Make Jesus' story your story in our corporate worship, in our prayers, in our own reading of scripture, in our own fasting, in our experience of temptation, and indeed in remembering our own baptisms, let us make Jesus' story our own. Let us access the same spirit of the power of God, the same power by the spirit of God that is ours, that we have been anointed with ourselves. Make Jesus' life your own. Your dustbound flesh has been buried in the death of Christ and you have been raised to a new life, to a new life defined by the life of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit of God. That's a life where there is really victory over temptation. This Lent, 
we should expect and pray. Expect and pray for both the fresh energy of the Holy Spirit and the quiet voice which reminds us of God's amazing fatherly love made ours by Jesus. May the Spirit empower us to conquer the devil, to conquer temptation, to turn from them, renouncing the devil, the world, and the flesh. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.